Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. It's always fantastic to be with you, and I feel as though I'm making friendships over the time, having inflicted myself and other English people upon you, and I'm very grateful for those friendships. I'm very excited by everything you're doing. Um, You give us confidence uh, in London um, to see another community that's um, going for the things of God and trying to extend the kingdom of God. It's a massive help. You should never underestimate that. If you're ever in London, please do come and look us up. And... um, uh, I am going to talk about um, the day of Pentecost, which you're probably very familiar with, except the minority of you who've just come in here because uh, it's just too hot outside. And uh, so I'll read what will probably be quite a familiar passage from the New Testament. Um, And this is about uh, a Jewish festival, um, Pentecost, um, celebrating the gift of the law and the first fruits of the harvest, but precious to the church Um, because this is the day uh, on which the Holy Spirit is first poured out. So I'll just read this to you. Chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? And then various countries are mentioned. Verse 11, Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said they're filled with new wine. Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. People of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. This this is uh, what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my slaves, men and women, on those days I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy. And I just feel slightly interrupted by God to say, I think that there'll be people here who have already, God has already spoken to last night in a dream or a vision. God has shown you what he's going to do today. So if that's the case, come and find me at the end. We'll have a little chat. Um, So, because that will be significant for what kind of person you are in the Holy Spirit more of a prophetic person, more of a person of dreams and visions. So if you feel like, do you know what, what's happening now? I've seen that. I saw that last night or earlier on. Come and find me. Um, So this very familiar passage to most of us is, if not the culmination, certainly an extremely important chapter in the great story of which we continue to be a part. And the great story begins with God, 
God who has a particular character, God who is love, God who is not loving, God who is love. To say that God is love is to say that there will be a creation because we do not just love, we love someone or something. There must be a creative object for love. And so we are the creative object of God's love. We are the necessary um, corollary of God being love in his very nature. But the fact that God has made us, created us, doesn't necessarily mean there will be nearness. So I'm just going to prove it to you. Um, Favourite, uh, is there anybody here that particularly loves a singer at the moment? Hand in the air. You love a singer, love all their songs. Could you, put, or do, you do any of you listen to music? Um, okay, <laughs> somebody nearby that I can actually see? Yeah, okay, so Tom. Um, who, who do you really like at the moment? Van Morrison, my goodness me, blimey, really moving forward into the 1980s there. So, Van Morrison, not a person that can really sing. Um, and uh, basically, uh, so Tom loves the music of Van Morrison. Can you name a few albums? Okay, good. And, and a, f- a few songs, individual songs? Fantastic. And so basically, so do you, have you listened to those songs again and again? Uh, do you know Van Morrison? So he knows the creation of Van Morrison, but he doesn't know Van Morrison. Now, he might actually be able to deduce some things about Van Morrison from what he has made, but he doesn't know Van Morrison. So just because you're part of the creation and you can see other parts of the creation doesn't necessarily mean that you know the creator. So nearness is not a necessary corollary of having been created just to start with. So, for example, Chris wrote a children's song some time ago, um, which is almost a criminal act, but he wrote a, a children's song called, called um, I Know That God Loves Me Even Though I've Got Very Large Hands. And that is uh, something which has emerged from his own pain that throughout his life he's had to drag along behind him or to the sides of him these enormous, great, galumping hands. I do not want you to focus on that when he's playing the guitar. Um, Don't sit there thinking, oh my goodness, they're like lobster claws. Don't think about that. Anyway, the reality is that the totality of Chris has not been collapsed into that song. You know, God still loves me even though I've got supersized hands. Everything about Chris is not expressed in that song. There is an element of him that's in there, but it's not all that we need to know about Chris. He's also written other songs. You don't ever listen to them, but basically they are there and they reveal something of Chris. Um, Like, for example, he's got the vibrato of Johnny Mathis. You know, so if you listen to one of Chris's songs, they inevitably a bit like this. I love, I love, I love your prayers. But pretty much all his songs. He did an album called Carolina, which is pretty much all like that. So that tells you something about Chris. I'm not sure what it is, but there's something of Chris in his creations. But knowing his songs, knowing his stuff is not the same as knowing Chris. So basically, the this, this um, momentous day in the history of God's story is all about God seeking to resolve this problem of being, uh, of being the creator but not necessarily being near. 
So what we see um, in the story of God is God coming closer and closer and closer. So in the Old Testament, God takes a people with no name. They are a non-people. They are a slave class. He calls them to himself. He takes them out of Egypt and he begins to reveal himself to this non-people and he makes them his people. Because of of course, God is the specialist in finding the weak, broken and foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the strong. And as I often say when I visit other churches and say in, in my own church as well, of course, it's not a compliment to be a Christian. The fact that you're a Christian, you are God's sick joke against the rest of the world. Because if you were actually any good, you wouldn't be here. You know, we are here to show the wise and the strong what they're missing, especially me. And so basically, um, God has found foolish brokenness. He's gathered it together and made it into something. But in many ways, he remained above and beyond understanding. So you can't make an image of him. You can't say his name. It's too holy. People didn't even know the name of God. So, you know, Abraham didn't know his name. And finally, when people do discover his name, it turns out to be I am who I am, which doesn't really tell you very much. So in many ways, the God who created the thing and revealed himself in a unique way to the people of Israel remained above and beyond understanding. You get a few intermediate a few kings and prophets who seem to experience the power of God, but generally speaking, he's above and beyond. That's chapter one. Chapter two, God comes as near as breathing, as close as hands and feet. He reveals himself in a way that we cannot miss. Now, like me, I'm sure that you've often thought in, you know, in times of idleness, if only I could communicate with a colony of ants. Now, there's an ant. If only I could speak to it, but I can't speak to it because it's an ant and I'm a human. What would be the way in which you could communicate with a colony of ants? I know, to become one. If only you could become an ant, but you can't, just saying. So basically, God has effectively become like one of us. He's taken upon himself frail flesh and entered into our world and into our experience of what it means to be a human being, except without sin. In every other respect, exactly as we are, sweating, foot odor, colds, laughing, crying, rejoicing, being sad, um, being frustrated, blah, 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 fully human, alive in every single way like us coming as near as hands and feet. But Jesus said a surprising thing to his disciples before he went away from them, which was, it's better that I go away from you. Now, how could it be better for Jesus to go away from people he spent three years with, who loved him, who had access to him 24-7? How could it be better for them, let alone anybody else, if Jesus was to go? The answer is because the way by, the, the means by which he went via the cross and the resurrection opened a level of intimate connection that wasn't previously available better than having somebody in front of your face is having the spirit of that person in your very being. And so God is coming closer and closer and closer. And in this particular passage, we are seeing the gift of the Holy Spirit being shed abroad in people's hearts, the spirit of Jesus. The Father and the Son are one. The Son and the Spirit are one. The the Spirit and the Father are one. They are of one being. And so to have the Spirit of God in you is to have Jesus in you, is to have the Father in you. And so basically what we're doing here is seeing God coming closer and closer and closer. Um, Now, basically, I'm I'm sorry that I've probably said this before. You may have heard this from me if you've had the dubious privilege of hearing me speak before. But I know that that doesn't really matter because I speak so quickly that you probably didn't take most of it in, so it doesn't matter. So I'll just remind you of this story. Basically, 
basically, you know, the English have passed on many very important things to um, other nations and cultures. And um, one of them is um, uh, the cor- understanding the correct separation between individuals. Now, you, with your have a nice day, can I help you as soon as you walk into a shop, have not really grasped this. You haven't grasped the essential separation of human beings in their cold, lonely, depressed state. We English, however, know all about that. And it's all to do with the weather. Here you are in California with nice weather where you actually have time and may not die if you stay outside. You know, you will be able to talk to people without the threat of exposure and certain death through cold frostbite. Whereas where I live, it's almost certain if you stay outside for too long, things will happen to you. So basically, um, um, what happens is that... um, we have, uh, in many ways, coded this sense of aloneness and separation into the way we live. So we've got buses, and when you go on a bus, there is no English person that expects to speak to another person on a bus, and it is social death if somebody actually sits near you or next to you, or particularly next to you. And, of course, we like iPods because that means we definitely can't speak to each other or could pretend we're not even aware of other people. So, basically, um, the English know that there are lots of seats for a reason, which is that you can only find your own one and not have to talk to anybody else. And we know there are two levels for a reason, as well, which is that if you're particularly English, you'll find the top level miles from anybody else. Even if there's only three other people on the bus, you will find the most furthest away corner, and that will confirm your national identity as an island separate from the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. <laughs> so, basically, imagine that you've, you're English and you found your own seat right up there, um, far away from anybody else, and there's really nobody else on the bus, but suddenly you can start to hear this kind of strange noise, this kind of strange rumbling sound, this kind of strange um, breathing, which is kind of cough-based and slightly ill. And it's a lot of effort, and somebody's obviously moving up the stairs. But it doesn't matter. There's no cause for concern. You hear the rustling of bags. It's obviously a very heavy person, and they're coming up the stairs. But look, there's lots of chairs. There's no cause for concern. However, they do not turn left. They turn right, and they move towards you. You think, this is weird. Can't they see? The open expanse of seats. Obviously not. They're coming nearer and until suddenly they sit right down next to you and their bags spill out into your lap and so do bits of their flesh because they're just too big. And basically they're invading your space. God's like that. (laughs) He comes closer and closer and closer and he comes to invade your space. And this is what this passage is about. It's about God, who is wholly other, coming as near as breathing and as close as hands and feet, even closer to, interpenetra- to, 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 to fill entirely the, the, the center of our being with his own presence. So I, um, I'm looking forward to traveling back with Ed because he's normal. And uh, basically, I had Chris, though, on the way there, and he, he triumphantly unblocked some seats, you know, by charm, by the power of charm. There were block seats, but Chris unblocked them by the power of his charm. They hadn't heard him sing. And basically, um, we were therefore moved to, from really comfortable middle aisle seats to what was, as far as I can see, one seat for two people right at the back by the restrooms. I didn't really know where the restroom started and my seat began. And various people of your kind asked me, are you in the line. No, I'm in my seat by the restroom. Anyway, so basically, um, and why are you standing there? Anyway, so I've got, I've got, you know, I've got comedy Chris with me and Chris likes to, you know, anybody here like collecting things? 
Chris likes to collect jobs. And so basically he has many jobs and he likes to juggle jobs, you know, in impossible ways. So he did nine hours of email. I, this is not an exaggeration. The flight's about ten and a half hours, of which nine and a half Chris spent emailing people. But what this meant was, firstly, you've got his slightly oddly proportioned body and his big thigh pushing into my sort of area which wasn't good, and then, and then his arm literally just nudging me, you know, because he's typing. No, li- there's nothing worse than a slight nudge. It's not a big nudge. It's just a little nudge that's going on and on and on for nine and a half hours. God's like that. God's like that. He's taking up your personal space, and he's just, you know, kind of nudging away and getting in you, in, in, uh, challenging your aloneness. So God resolves that issue of being the creator but coming near, but he also resolves something else which is absolutely crucial. And it's going to lead me to ask you the question, do you believe what you say you believe? I I often like to ask Christians that question. Do you believe what you say you believe? So a couple of people I've spoken to recently in my church, young guys, talented guys. One of them is from America, others English. The American guy has a very unusual um, background in that all his relatives going back for generations have been mega successful. So we're talking world-class scientists, um, FBI, we're talking about models, we're talking about everything you can think of that is a, stand, a, a status of success here, they've done it. And he got jobs from every single um, financial institution that he applied to um, in the city of New York when he was 15. And there's nothing that he hasn't been able to do. However, in recent times, he hasn't been able to control a relationship that's not working. And he hasn't been able to control himself and his own response to the breakdown of this relationship. Prior to that time, everything's been under his neat and tidy control. And when he comes to St. Mary's and hears about God's grace, about God loving you, irrespective of your achievements and your attainments, is a massive problem to him. And I said to him, so if God was to set you a whole series of tests and that you could earn his love, would that actually make you feel better? He said that would come as a huge relief. And that is because we have been conditioned to earn things, to earn approval, to earn success. Forge, your motor company, had 27 levels of offices and you move from one office to another as you went up in the company. We breathe the breath of ungrace. We breathe the breath of performance-orientated approval and success. And many of us will have suffered from that in a big way. Our parents theoretically love us because we're their children, but actually what they've communicated is they love us if we behave well or if we are a, a source of pride to them. Otherwise, they're not really that interested. And that's been passed on from generation to generation. And many of us will feel like failures because we haven't attained levels of success in the way that other people have, and we're agitated in our inner beings by that, and we ignore away at us. And it undermines our sense of worth. Now, that's normal throughout the world. It's normal. So um, this guy does not believe in grace. And um, I don't know whether it's because I come from an atheist background, but, or maybe I'm just a logical-ish person. But basically, I signed up to become a Christian to receive all the good things. You know, so I knew about the bad things of life. I wanted the good stuff. So when it says that God gives you his grace, which you don't deserve, I like that. I like to receive things that I don't deserve. If people give me money, I like to receive it. I know that's not a problem for me. If people give me money, I receive it. If they buy me meals, I receive it. I don't sit there thinking, oh, I better earn that or work for it. I just go, thank you. I'm that kind of guy. I like it. In the same way, forgiveness of sins, you can be forgiven just by asking. Brilliant. Really? Fantastic. Sign me up. 
absolutely wonderful. And I think that's partly because my father, who was actually quite ineffectual in various ways, definitely loved me. He definitely loved me. In fact, my father was a chronic exaggerator. And so basically, if I played tennis, I was like Wimbledon level. And I'd find that out because he'd tell other people and then they'd say, so when did you play at Wimbledon? And I'd say, I didn't play at Wimbledon. And it, that happened all my life. He's a chronic exaggerator, but in a good way. So it was like really positive lies about me. <laughs> but it certainly didn't give me a low sense of self-worth, for which I'm grateful. I'm grateful. So when I became a Christian, I just thought, God is like a father who gives even more generous assessments than my own father. Great. <laughs> Sign me up. But there are lots of people that do not believe what they theoretically believe. So there's a famous um, case in London of a woman who owned an extraordinarily um, uh, um, expensive apartment in Knightsbridge and also many well-known and valuable paintings, but she chose to live on the streets with her rubbish. And my experience of Christians is often that they're theoretically living as orphans, really. Well, theoretically sons and daughters, but actually orphans. As though they don't really belong and they're not really quite sure why they're here. And if you really ask them, they don't think they deserve to be here or have earned being here and they're not sure they'd really be accepted. Blah, 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 blah. So they're living as though they don't belong, but they're in the building. And that is not believing what you say you believe. In the same way, another friend of mine, English, grew up in church and his father led a church. And basically the presenting problem is recently married making love basically feels guilty every time because sex previously has been a dirty and unclean thing and this has gone on for years and so the pattern is failure can't look at God can't come near to God because God thinks he's a failure and he knows he's a failure and basically therefore he just carries on doing what he's doing and um, is separated from God and he said to me you know I don't think I've ever experienced the love of God I know theoretically what that is, and I've been in churches which have encouraged me to be accountable, and they've encouraged me to you know, share openly and to grow and develop as a disciple again and again. And yet here I am, not really even understanding the basics. And I would say that's another example of somebody who does not believe what he believes. And I'm thinking of these as conversion conversations. Now, both of these people are in my church, and, uh, but they don't believe what they believe. And I want to know whether anybody else is in that position today, because it's a very sad and lonely place. Now, what I want to say to you by way of good news, and this is my privilege to say this, is that God has dealt with this problem. So think about the worst things about you. No, the worst things, forget those ones. Go deeper. The worst things about you, things that you're really ashamed of, you should never have done or thought, or things that have gone horribly wrong. Those things. Now, those are the things, things that come up when you sing the songs. Those are the things that come up which make you feel a pervasive, squirmy sense of, I'm not really sure I should be here singing these. I'm a hypocrite. I'm not going to put myself forward to do this or that in the church because, you know, if people knew what I was really like, they wouldn't have me. Those things. Things you repress the memory of, things that are just too difficult to even talk about or think about, those things. Now, are they wrong? Yes. Have they spoilt you? Yes. Have they broken you? Yes. Do they drag around like a foul stench? Yes, they do. Is it like having, you know, you know what it's like when, the, when the, um, the trash can gets full and it needs to be emptied? That's not my job, by the way. I do other things. I do the money. I do the washing up. I do loading the dishwasher. I do not do the bin. I do the dishes. I don't do the trash. I don't. That's my wife's job. She does the trash. I'm just saying. Now, basically, imagine that it, get, now, but it starts to get full, right? I, mean, I don't do the trash, but I can smell the trash. 
when are you going to do the trash? Imagine if the trash never went away. That's what it's like for some people. The trash just gets older and older and it never goes away. Now, the great news is that Jesus is the trash man of the world. And he comes to take away all the rubbish. It's not fair. It's not right. It is all about grace. Grace is a different economy from what we are used to. You know this verse, God's ways are not my ways, his thoughts are not my thoughts, uh, are not my thoughts, says the Lord. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great are God's thoughts from our thoughts, right? The otherness of God. God is other. Now you might think he's talking about his holiness, but he's not. In the context, the otherness of God is this. I am not like a man, says God, in that I will show mercy. So the otherness of God is primarily expressed in the grace that he shows to people who do not deserve it. And the way in which God resolved the tension of our brokenness, our rejection of him, all the things that you know to be true of yourself, that you should never have done, you shouldn't still be doing, blah, blah, here you are in church, blah, 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 all of that, right? He resolves the tension of the existence of these broken, unclean things in us with his love. He resolves the tension. Often theologians will describe it as the divine pathos of God. It's such a trauma to him in the book of Hosea. He's almost schizophrenic. He cannot decide whether to do away with humanity or to embrace um, humanity once again in his sweet love. And basically what you have is the problem of unmediated God in the Old Testament. You've got the problem of Uzzah, who's only trying to stop the flipping Ark of the falling in the mud he reaches out a hand and he's fried by God that's the problem of unmediated God you cannot touch a holy thing with an unclean thing break the law you're dead that is why Moses doesn't enter into the promised land the meekest man that ever lived doesn't make it because he didn't speak to a rock rather than hit it with a stick what he doesn't make it then you get um you get Saul he's judged by God because he's a crap leader he might have been tall but that was it David get David replaces him but he commits adultery so the child dies bang just like that this is the problem of unmediated God all the things you don't like in the old testament are the problem of unmediated God because God is an all-consuming fire he is holy he is pure and you know what that means because when something really gets under your skin that agitates you and upsets you and you think that's not fair that is what God feels like and he feels like that about all of our sin every single bit of it and so when you feel like crap when you come into a church situation because you worry about what God might think you are right to worry about that except for this God has resolved this tension he has done every single thing necessary to resolve it and he has acted in humility to be the trash man of the world. He's come down, he's assumed our flesh and blood, he's become like one of us, except without sin. He is your representative, fully human. Fully human in every way, your perfect representative. And so he has taken the judgment of God at the cross in our place. God was in Christ reconciling himself to the world. He did it for us without any of our help. Thank you very much indeed. From the high heart of heaven comes the burning lover's son coming down to us, disappearing ones to win us for himself. That is what God has done in Christ. He has done it with no help from us. Thank you very much. With none of our assistance, none of our earning, none of our performance, none of you are here because you performed or earned it at all. It means nothing. It's filthy, stinking rags. God has done everything necessary to deal with the problem of his not being near. He's done it. It's a gift. So for all those of you who honestly, honestly do not feel that you could be loved or that you've been able to resolve the awfulness of what happened, know that God has done it. And please, you please try and believe what you believe. God is nice and he likes you. 
That is the message of the New Testament. God is nice and he likes you. He's not your father. He's not your old father. He's not that guy that was inconsistent, absent, dead. He's not that father. He is the father of the New Testament. Believe what you believe for goodness sake, because if you do, if you do believe what you believe, you will be a wild and dangerous beast filled with the power of the Spirit and able to be the image of God. You were always meant to be the walking, talking temple of the living God in all his glory that God designed you to be going out into the world and doing damage in a really good way. Otherwise, you will just be sitting in a chair. And as I said in the first service, there are lots of better chairs. You've got lazy boys, you've got, you know, beach chairs, you've got lots of chairs. Why do you want to cram yourself into a crappy little school chair? There's no point, but that's all you will be doing unless you resolve this question. Whereas you could be a wild and dangerous slathering beast of God, a dribbling gift monster full of the Holy Spirit doing astonishing things. What are you going to do? Now, the thing is, I look at me, I'm a charismatic. Look at this. This is what a charismatic looks like. I believe in speaking in tongues, prophesying, healing, casting out demons. I also believe in everything else in the New Testament. I, I am definitely one of those people. I know charismatic is a bad word in your culture. It's not in mine. It's a slightly different thing. But basically, I am one of those. I absolutely am. Now, I say that because I want to say now that the most important things that happen in church happen in the mind in the mind. It's all about what you believe. You are not who you think you are. You are who you think the most important person in your life thinks you are, according to therapists, psychotherapists. It's the theory of the looking glass self. You are not who you think you are. You are who the most important person in your life thinks you are. What you think, you, they think you are. Got it? I'm going to say that again. You are not who you think you are. You are who you think the most important person in your life thinks you are. So if you are who you think God thinks you are, you're a wild and, and dangerous beast because he says you're a saint of the most high God. Now, who are, sinners in, who are sinners in the Bible? Sinner is an actual technical designation applying to unbelievers. A sinner is somebody who does not know this God. A saint is somebody who does. Are you a saint or are you a sinner? Because if you come in here going, oh, woe is me, I am a slug. I am a slug of God, a separated, slothful, disgusting, crawling, sluggy beast. If that's what you're saying, you haven't understood you're a saint. And basically, if you actually keep on repeating, I am a slug, you will behave like a slug, you will think like a slug, and you will be one. Whereas if you believe that you are a saint, you'll actually start acting like one. However, I have to put in the caveat, you will always be slug-like. Between now and eternity, never listen to a Christian that tells you they don't sin, that, that they've got victory over sin. No, you don't. We are all on this perpetual thing of being made whole, but we are all moral and spiritual idiots. God has chosen us because of our weakness and brokenness. As I've said, we are his sick joke against those who've got it all up together or who think they have. Good. So... Pentecost is about God resolving his creator distance and his holiness distance by his coming as near as breathing and as close as hands and feet and putting his very spirit into the depths of us. And it's about one other thing. Have we got time for it? What time do we end? Okay, so just in five minutes, it's about, it's about ecstatic intimacy. Everybody wants ecstatic intimacy. The longest longitudinal study ever conducted began in 1938, of Harvard men, to look at the question, what made them successful? Do you know what the biggest factor was? Undeniably, the existence of a loving, long-term relationship. 
is the greatest predictor of success and happiness in every area of life. Now, it is crucially important that we have loving, deep connections with other people. Crucially important. And the hurts of our life often go back to a lack of connection with those that really cared for us, especially in the ages of naught to three, but then on into the rest of our life as well. However, open to all of us at all times is a loving, close connection with God. And the difference between God and a husband or a wife or anybody else is that they're not, he's not going to let you down. You can always come close to God. You can dwell in his love. You can remain in his love. You can draw strength from his love. You can meditate on what he says about you and your identity, believe it, trust in it, and prove that it is true. In fact, we have nothing to prove except the verdict that, lo- that God loves us. That's all we have to prove, in fact, that God is who he says he is by our lives. And so basically, we can always enjoy this deep, deep connection with our Father and be sustained in life through it. And I'd like to just talk a little bit about marriage for a moment to show the opposite, because the opposite is actually where a lot of us will inevitably be. So, um, anybody here married? Okay, I'm just going to tell you about your marriage problem. So there's only one problem people have in marriage, it's always the same. So whenever your partner hurts you, it is because they have either actually left you alone or given you the impression that you are alone. And basically, whenever you hurt your partner, it is because you've either left them alone or given them the impression that they are alone. Aloneness is coded in our brain as danger. It sets off something in the brain in the same way that when we stand on the curb and we see something coming from our peripheral vision, we know to step backwards. When pe- that's why you can be having a perfectly nice time with your partner and then become totally furious with them in a second because these reactions of anxiety and fury come from the um, the panic side of our brain we are, they're coded as danger and so basically aloneness is very very bad for us and it is overwhelmingly bad to feel that we are being left alone by the person we primarily look to to love us it's the cruelest and worst thing that we can do and we do it all the time now what that shows us is that to come into a place like this to sing these songs, to listen to this teaching, but to still feel alone is a horrible double think. It's cognitive dissonance. It is the worst place to be in. You need to believe what you believe for your well-being's sake, for the good of your inner being. You need to receive it and fire all the old images, and you can do it. Now, there are some people whose experience of life is so bad that trusting is very difficult for them, but there'll be other people that can trust. You can trust another person. You genuinely don't have an issue with trust. So it's not that your trust mechanism is actually broken. So flip and use it to believe the things that God says about you because they are good, and they set you free. It's all going on in your mind. So choose to believe what you believe and have a happy time. My job is just happiness spreading. (laughs) This is, uh, I always, whenever I read this account, I'm I'm always struck by um, how uh, ecstatic the experience of the disciples is. Um, 
And really, Pentecost is holding open the possibility that we can enjoy in, delight in, be satisfied by the love of God. Now, I don't believe the experience of God's love removes from us the need for actual human connections. And people sometimes say that because they're a bit silly. Basically, we need human connections. We've been made for human connections. But if we are connected primarily to God, it can change what we need from other people in terms of the degree of it. Because a lot of our, some of our pains will be, I'm totally dependent on what A or B says to me. And if A or B says the wrong thing, my life will end. Well, that is because we're not properly connected to God. And it's self-defeating. To have your identity merged into the identity of somebody else is a recipe for disaster because they are always going to hurt you. When I finish um, the course that we initiate people into in St. Mary's, I always end by saying, I want you to know I'm going to hurt you. Sooner or later, I'll hurt you. Because I'm not perfect. I will hurt you. I don't think any other church need to say that to their people, but I like to say it. It's more of a threat than a reality, you know. Um, Having the love of God shed abroad in our hearts is the essence of the Pentecost experience. It's the personal experience of love for Jesus that empowers us and drives us forward. Dutifully serving God is not a substitute for enjoying his love. Working for God as if we were an employee totally misses the point. So consider this question. Has the love of God been shed abroad in your heart? Has it ever been shed abroad in your heart? Has it been a long, old, dry time since the love of God was last shed abroad in your heart? You know the answer. Do you even know the God I'm talking about at all? Would you like to? You know the answer. It's not for me to answer these questions. Just about to finish. Pentecost is about something we're deeply drawn to as human beings, the possibility of ecstatic intimacy. So when you fall in love, you are under the spell of a genetic contract, which is designed to get you to propagate the species. I like to be as romantic as possible. So you fall in love with this person who's within your degree of variance that's acceptable, the right kind of appearance, the right kind of person, and you sense that they are that person. And then things that will later become horrible realities about them are dismissed as trivial little eccentricities. And then after four years, you realize, oh no, they really are like that. And even though I've explained that I think this, they still don't actually agree. That's why after four years, if marriages are going to break down, they often do. Because it takes four years to prove they're really, really like that. And we've come out of, you know, unreality and entered into reality. They're really, really like that. And that is when love begins. Now, basically, basically, I can't remember why I was telling you that. Um, yeah ecstatic intimacy is what we're all wanting that's why falling in love is the subject of all the films notice the films are not about being in love and when the characters in an ongoing um, soap finally get together it's kind of the end of the story I mean, Grey's Anatomy, right? I had to watch that by virtue of being married for a little bit. There was only so long I could watch it for before I wanted to scratch out my own eyes. But basically, there was, there was you know, you know the, I have to say, the romance between Derek and whatever her name was, Meredith, was quite compelling. Briefly! But after they've got together, broken up, and got together and broken up several hundred times, I literally don't care. But basically, imagine that they were always together and they never broke up. It wouldn't be good drama. The drama is the initial thing, and it's the ecstatic thing that we're looking for, and then we become addicted to it. Now, the thing about ecstasy and is that it can never, relational ecstasy can never remain because it's got to do with novelty. 
We've got to learn how to love. But the thing is, you do need to be initiated into the love of God because the disciples didn't do anything without the love of God. And unlike human experiences, we can come to be renewed by God again and again. Sometimes we feel the intensity of that, sometimes we don't. But it doesn't matter. The Spirit's always given to us. And basically, I just want to say, in conclusion, really, that... um, um, the quest for true and intimate connection in our relationships and the pain that comes up when this quest is frustrated or disappointed is a large part of our story as human beings. That's our story as opposed to God's story. And when I see this passage, I notice the experience of the disciples is overwhelming. The presence of the Spirit affects all their senses. You know, they appear to see something, feel something. You know, they, they, it's a multi-sensory experience. It's intoxicating. It's as if they're ravished. The angelic realm scoops up the fallen earth and gives it a deep kiss. That's what's going on. They're given a new means of intimate communion with God who's come near. And of course, it has to be the language of angels. The disciples are transformed in a moment from mere believers into ecstatic believing lovers. And that is our birthright, ladies and gentlemen. Please don't settle for anything less. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org. 